I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. A few months ago, the New York Times released a truly heartbreaking expose. Nine schools in New York State had less than 1% of students testing at grade level in 2019. All of them were Hasidic boys' schools, which have collected nearly $1 billion in public funds over the past four years. Joining me today is a brave mother who's trying to do better for these kids, the executive director of Yafed, an organization that advocates for better education for ultra-Orthodox children. Beatrice Weber left her turbulent, arranged marriage of more than 20 years and is now fighting to place her 10th and youngest son in a yeshiva that teaches more than 90 minutes of math and English a day and to make sure that all of these state-funded schools offer a bare minimum of secular studies. Beatrice, welcome to In These Times. Great to be here. Thank you for having me today. I've been uh, very much looking forward to speaking with you, and Hasidic community is part of our community, but we don't really have that much understanding of just the personality, the character, the nature, the way of life, the thoughts, the religious principles. You grew up in the Hasidic community. You were married at a very young age. You You were blessed with many children, also at a young age. So tell us uh, about your background and what that's like. So I actually grew up in, not in New York, not in Brooklyn. I grew up in Canada. And I always say I had a very international life. I grew up in Canada. I lived in Rockland County. I lived in Israel. I lived in Brooklyn. But wherever I lived, I was in that bubble of the Hasidic community. Because the Hasidic community is quite international. I grew up the oldest of eight children. All my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, which was typical of of where I grew up. My mother says in her class, there were only two children who had grandparents. One had a grandfather, one had a grandmother. Nobody else had grandparents. So that was typical and kind of the unspoken in the Hasidic world. At least in my family system, nobody spoke about the Holocaust ever. We weren't even allowed to say the word. And we wouldn't read books. The trauma was so near and really was left very, very, very unprocessed. And there was a, a strong desire for survival, perpetuate the community and grow the families. And I actually grew up what is called Heimish because there's always subcultures and subcultures and subcultures, right? So that was you know, very adjacent to the Hasidic world. The city that I grew up in did not have a Hasidic girls' school. So I attended the regular Orthodox girls' school, which was, you know, close enough, but different enough that I had my own set of rules within that school, right? When you say Hasidic, did you, it's not Chabad, or which one was it? Hungarian. Hungarian. Hungarian, yeah. So uh, my grandfather came from a really small sect that has recently been in the New York Times because my son goes to the school of that sect, but otherwise is almost very, is very unknown, called Salem, a, a small sect that came over again immediately after the Holocaust. I think that's important also just to emphasize because most of the people who don't live in the Hasidic community, we kind of look at it and we think it's one universal community, uh, but really it's very, very diverse. Very diverse. And I always say whoever thinks that Crown Heights and Williamsburg is the same have like absolutely zero cultural competency. Like they have no idea. But even within you know, the Hungarian, Polish, there are quite a number of differences. But there are things that are very similar also. You know, when you talk about Hasidim that live in America versus the ones that live in Israel, there are also 
significant differences there as well. And even with education, there are some Hasidic boys schools that provide, you know, a reasonably decent education, and there are others that provide absolutely nothing, including Chabad, which is something people don't don't know about. That in Crown Heights, you know, the biggest schools don't provide don't provide any secular education, meaning zero, meaning there's nobody that comes into the school and teaches the kids how to read and do math. You grew up in this environment. You ended up in New York. Yeah, my parents moved up to Rockland County when I was a teenager. I got married while I lived in New York and then immediately moved to Israel, which was in the sub-sect that I came from was very much something that was looked up to. My father had gotten wealthy over the years, so having a scholar for a son-in-law, again, in this particular sect, was very highly, highly valued. I got married with a dowry and then moved to Israel to be the wife of somebody that was going to be learning full-time. And that was an arranged marriage? Yes. And how many times did you meet your husband before you married? There are differences, right? There are some circles, for instance, New Square, where there's a meeting for 20 minutes and then, then you're, you're engaged. So we were a little more liberal, so I had three meetings across the dining room table. But it was very much, you could only say no if there was something really big that really bothered you. But otherwise, it was a given. You know, one of my sisters fought back a lot, but she had to do a lot of screaming and fighting until my parents introduced her to somebody that she was okay with. But I I didn't have that kind of stamina at that age. What age was that? I was 18. And, you know, my daughter got engaged. Same thing, also 18. It was valued. Like the the younger you got engaged, that was considered a good thing. And so at the time, that's what you wanted. That's all I knew. And that he was going to be a rabbi or that he was already a rabbi and he was going to be considered a great scholar was, it was to your credit and to your family's credit. Yes. Yeah. So similar to perhaps in the broader American world, at least last generation was like my son-in-law, the doctor, a similar kind of mentality around that. My parents were willing to support that financially for many years. So you moved to Israel and you were not yet pregnant. You didn't have a child yet. Believe it or not, I was pregnant when I moved to Israel. I moved to Israel seven weeks after I was married, and I was already pregnant, yes. And did you have your child in Israel? I had seven children while I lived in Israel, yes. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So seven of the ten were actually born in Israel. Yes, they were. How many years did you live in Israel? I lived in Israel for 11 years. What prompted you both to come back, or the entire family to come back? So I think this is important to understand. I wouldn't call us anti-Zionists, but we definitely did not like Zionists at all. We didn't, we didn't like Arabs either, right? But we didn't like Zionists. You didn't like Zionists because uh, Zionism was fundamentally a secular uh, initiative. It was a secular political movement. And, and for religious reasons, you were opposed to Zionism. Yes. Now, there are groups, and I have relatives, that are extremely opposed, meaning they would never go to the Kotel, to the Western Wall. They wouldn't fly El Al. We were not that extreme, but we made sure that every single one of our children would not be an Israeli citizen. So after every child you know, that I gave birth to, I'd go to the American embassy and do everything I had to do there. And then I'd go to the Misrat HaPnim to get a little certificate that would say that they're not Israeli citizens. You know, part of the concern was them needing to go to the army. So I think that's something I don't know if people realize how much anti-Zionism really exists in, in the Hasidic community. So after uh, 11 years and seven children, you and your husband and and the kids returned to Muncie. And so you had three additional kids after that. Correct. And all this time, were you satisfied? Because eventually you left the community and I think you termed it an an oppressive system, uh, which I want to explore with you as well. But during this time, did you at that point consider it oppressive and already begun to 
think about leaving the community or were you still firmly ensconced in the Muncie Hasidic community? It's interesting because when I was about 15 or 16, I was, you know, as teenagers tend to be, rebellious. Externally, it looked like I was wearing knee socks instead of tights. And, you know, went to, snuck out to a movie once, which was like absolutely the, the worst thing. But I think importantly, I was asking a lot of questions and my parents were worried and took me to different seminars in the community that are mostly geared for outsiders. Eventually, they sent me to a seminary in England in order to kind of shape me up and make me yeah, buckle down and get back into things. And I was 16 and that was quite traumatic for me, actually. And I did buckle down, you know, and I was like, OK, you know, clearly this is not going to work. I can't ask questions here. I, I have to buckle down if I want to be able to survive this. So I will say, you know, those years living in Israel, I was busy as an understatement, right? Because I was raising all those children. And, you know, sometimes I, I think the busyness that especially mothers, but even men are, are have in the community, it's so not intentional where you can't even think because you're just so busy doing and doing. I completely bought into the, the values of the community. I was somewhat privileged in the community, I will say, because my parents were wealthy and my ex-husband was a scholar. I really didn't feel many of the hard edges that some others may experience, meaning I was able to get my children into any schools I wanted whenever I wanted. Nobody really bothered me. So I wouldn't say I had freedom. I didn't hit many of the of the harsh edges that other people or other women might hit. And I, everybody I knew, you know, lived the life I lived. I, I do remember one of my ex-husband's friend's wives went to college. One of her parents worked at Turo, so she was doing some college classes. She didn't have children right away. And I remember at one point, like, thinking, like, oh, imagine, you know, if that was something I can do. Other than that, I was very loyal and very tied into the ideals. So what began to change your mind and when did that happen? It really was a multi-year process. You know, the marriage was rough outside of what goes on in the Hasidic community, though, of course, impacted and influenced by it. But, you know, it was a rough marriage that people can have in, in any in any community, right? You don't just see them in, in the Hasidic community. What made it harder is that there is, is the automatic assumption and the teachings, right? I was taught being a good wife is is the most important ideal. The way to have a good marriage is to be a good wife. Really reinforce and emphasize using scripture to bolster that. That, you know, a woman only receives her, her reward in the world to come if she takes her sons to yeshiva and supports her husband in learning. You know, things like that that were taught to us, not as, you know, what I know now to be the Talmud as, you know, a compilation of things that people were saying, but rather as like, you know, baseline values, like this is how it has to be. There was also a lot of fear that I think many people, Jewish people in the general world, don't see their Judaism that way. But in the in the Hasidic community, the fear comes in at a very, very young age, before you could talk. I mean, I was taught, you know, Hashem, right? That's how we refer to God, is everywhere. But it didn't feel nice and fuzzy everywhere. It felt scary everywhere. You know, that there was somebody always looking out. You mean fear of religion, fear of God and God's sanctions, or fear of the discipline that the community imposes? Oh, as a young child, it was a lot, a lot of fear of God, a lot of fear of God. Yeah, Hashem is everywhere, can see everything and whatever you do, and then so many rules. 
when I talk about so many rules, you wake up in the morning. So the moment you wake up, you have to, you're not allowed to put your feet on the floor because you first have to wash your hands six times. Then you have to say modani, which are all actually beautiful rituals. But as a young child, being taught them with a lot of fear, right? Before you put their special blessings, before you put any food in your mouth. And I'm sure a lot of this is familiar. As a Hasidic child, you're taught about all these things that absolutely must be done correctly. And there is punishment if they're not done correctly. As a young girl, from a very young age, you're taught about the meaning to dress modestly from from three years old. Girls have to wear you know, skirts that are a certain length and, and sleeves that cover their elbows. I mean, a three-year-old's a baby. You know, but you're being, you're already taught, you know, this is how you need to dress. And the the segregation between boys and girls start at, at three. I never went to a school with um, boys from the age of three. You're completely separate, you know, different buildings. Maybe you're talking to your cousins, you know, your first cousins, maybe till you're about 10, it's acceptable. But otherwise, there's absolutely, you know, complete segregation. And, you know, I've done some work with people who have come out of other, you know, religions that they felt is oppressive, you know, Christian religion sects, where they've talked about their fear of hell. I say, no, 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 well, I'm not, I'm not afraid of hell. Though people say Jews don't believe in Gehenna. I don't know. We were taught about Gehenna. But definitely we were a lot more afraid of like an accident can happen, right? Somebody got cancer. Oh, why did they get cancer? Oh, the women aren't dressing modestly enough. Okay, we need to make another rule. That is something that is still ongoing in the community, which is extremely toxic. And is that what you mean when you when you say it's an oppressive system? It's oppressive first because of its rigid theology, and then it's enforced day after day, week after week, year after year, with rigid rules that that bring forth sanctions by the community if they're violated in particular in an obvious way. Is that what you mean when you say, you know, an oppressive system or do you mean something else? Yes. And so there are all these rules which technically are not considered community rules. They're considered God's rules, right? They're Hashem's rules. But then there is the other part of it, which mostly what I'm referring to when I talk about oppressive is the rules the community makes that really trap people in and really don't give them any choices. I experienced that when I tried to leave my marriage. And I want to make it very clear that I was, when I left my marriage, I had absolutely no thought of leaving the community. I had turned 40. I had started going to college. Secular college. I mean, it was secular college, but it was a, a branch of Toro that is catered specifically towards women in the Hasidic community. I see. So there were other people who did the same thing that you did. Yes. But it was a big deal, and it came after recognizing, you know, after 15 years and many children, that my marriage was really bad. And that, you know, what am I going to do now? At that point, I had uh, eight children. What am I going to do now? And, you know, trying to see what I can do within the marriage. So one of the thoughts was, you know, I'll get a job out of the house. I'll go to college. And then, you know, we'll, we'll be able to make this work. And eventually, you know, I got an MBA, which I did online, really gave me, you know, self-confidence and also made me realize, do I really need to stay, you know, in this bad situation for so long? You know, and as long as I was in the marriage and trying to make things work, I definitely received support from the community. Rabbis, you know, that I reached out to were supportive and working together with me and my then husband to see what, what we can do to make this marriage work. Then I left. You left the marriage. Your intention was to stay in the Hasidic community. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, what, what happened then was what really shocked, was it absolutely shocked me. 
I feel like it's cliche, but it's something I'm still healing from. The way the whole mikvah and family purity, how it's dealt with in the community. I think people still think it's an exaggeration when women say that you show your underwear to a rabbi, but it's absolutely expected. So these were rabbis, you know, that I had relationships for, for a long, long time. I thought understood me and were supportive of me. But once I left, I left the marriage, the backlash that I got and the betrayal that I got from my family and as well as rabbis just shocked me to my core. So the community put all of its emphasis on the integrity of the community and it, it paid much less attention to the needs of the individual. And, and in your case, the needs of a woman who wanted to leave her marriage. Absolutely. And I think what you just said really encapsulates the values of the community. The sense of community is way more important than each individual. It's like the individual is expected to completely suppress their needs in order to make that community work. It's really interesting, uh, Beatrice, because Western society is based on on the autonomy of the individual, right? It's not that we do have a problem in systems that put the individual at the center. You know, the, the price of that is that we often don't think enough about the community and don't express enough responsibility for the community. But it's a philosophy that is really the opposite of a philosophy that elevates the community over and above the needs of the individual to such an extent that it's prepared to run over the needs of the individual in order to preserve and safeguard the honor, the integrity, the cohesion of the community. Yes, unfortunately, that is the way I see it. And I think when you're in it, that's all you know. You don't necessarily see it. And I, I didn't necessarily see it that way. But it's when you I broke the rule, right? It, the expectation was I would stay in that marriage no matter what. And there are many women as they get older struggle because when you're young and you're having children and you're feeling fulfilled, and I say I was very fulfilled having my children. I was busy, right? I was taking care of them. I was cooking. I was I was busy. You get older and then, you know, all of a sudden it hits you, right? And so um, eventually you kind of had a escape in the middle of the afternoon with several of your kids. You arranged for one of your friends to pick you up and and you left. So that was actually when I left my marriage because w what happened was my ex was absolutely not going to give up on this marriage. You know, to him, he married me and I was going to stick to it no matter what. You know, we worked with therapists and tried to make it work and it was clear clearly not working anymore. And, it, you know, at one point he made it very clear to me that if I would leave, I would never see any of the children again. And that absolutely horrified me. At first, I didn't believe it. But then, you know, the older children, you know, they stopped talking to me and were threatening me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose all my children. And one thing that is kind of known in the community that people are very afraid of is that if you get divorced, you may not see your children again. That's a threat that's used. And there are many cases of people who have left the community and don't have their children with them anymore. And that's a combination of the schools often get very involved in speaking to the children, and there's just a lot of community pressure. So when that happened, I got very scared and very worried, and I was like, how am I going to do this? You've heard of people who want to get divorced, and somehow they get their you know husband to move out. I could do none of that. I couldn't even get him to move out of my bedroom. So <laughs> eventually it got to a point where I had no idea how I was going to leave. I had no idea. And, you know, the rabbis I was working with were trying to convince me to stay. 
on the occasion that I that I actually ended up leaving, what happened was there was a rabbi that suggested I go away for the holiday with the younger children. When my ex-husband found out, he told the children that he doesn't let them go and then told the rabbi that they don't want to go with me. So I was you know, horrified. And I actually spoke to a friend and she's like, can't you just go? I was like, I can't. There's no, how can I leave? And it was actually, you know, I planned this, you know, with, with a professional, like, how could I leave? And my intention was literally just to go away for the week, Pesach, for Passover. So I, you know, made the decision that if I leave in the middle of the night and kind of disappear for the next 12 hours or 15 hours and arrive moments before Passover at my brother's house, I would have a few days. I was only gone a few hours when I realized that I'm actually not going back. You know, and I think a lot of women have that. It's hard to really see yourself leaving. But then, you know, I was only out a few hours and I said, there's no way I'm going back. Then I had to go to court, of course, and get temporary custody as well as orders of protection because I was afraid they would come take the children away from me. There is where, unfortunately, you know, my family decided to take a very strong stand in support of my ex-husband and Many family members came. So you had this scene where it was me standing. I had got, I had managed to raise money and have a lawyer with me. And then, you know, a whole stage of Hasidic men standing there. Unfortunately, I'm not the first case where judges have seen that. But they can be effective. They can be effective sometimes in the family court system, which is why you have these situations of of people losing custody. But I was successful, so very grateful. And it was my personal Yitziat Petraim, right? Because it happened <laughs> the night of Pesach. So it really was the first step for me to say, that's it. I deserve to live a life where I'm not being pushed around and told what I need to do. I deserve that. To clarify, I was very much part of the community at that point. It was only several years later, the first year and a half that I was working closely with rabbis and then really experienced that betrayal that led me to a lot of soul searching and a lot of really spiritual healing. And a lot of my leaving the community ultimately was all this healing work I was doing after all those years with the understanding that there was no way I could do this while still having this fear of God. I I had to stop living my life that there was a boogeyman God out there that was going to get me and punish me. Just listening to you, I have so much respect and admiration for your courage and your insistence and your tenacity, because what you're describing, most people wouldn't be able to do. Not only overcoming the theology that has been pounded into you since your first conscious days, but also, maybe even more so, the enormous pressure that the community itself imposes on you that reaches even your own family members. So it's really... uh, phenomenal thing, and I want to emphasize how much I admire your courage and your principles. You said you had custody or you continue to have custody with a number of your children. How is your relationship with your kids? Are some of them estranged or are you in a good place with them? Yeah, unfortunately, my older children, I keep on hoping that as they get older and are parents of their own, they'll have a a better understanding of and be able to connect. But unfortunately, since I left back then, almost nine years ago, my relationship with my older children has been very, very strained and a a big source of pain um, and loss for me. Tell us about secular education in the Hasidic communities. There was a long 
article in the New York Times that mentioned a number of other people as well, but featured you. And uh, you're a fighter now for more secular education for Hasidic uh, kids. Tell us about that. So eventually, I settled in family court. My ex-husband got engaged, and he wanted to settle. And I was like, great, I can get out of this. Let's do it. And as part of it, there was a stipulation put in that I need to continue sending my children to similar schools. You know, I knew from what I heard from other people that very likely that would be something the court would rule in any case. And at that point in 2016, my children were still young, just wanted to get out of family court and live my life. As I continued to grow professionally, graduated with my MBA, I don't know if I could have done what I did if I hadn't gotten my college degrees and had the job, right? I had a job. By the time I left, I had a job as director of operations in a nonprofit. I had some resources. I was able to do something. So really realized the importance of it. You know, had my younger two children with me, and I actually managed to switch my daughter to a different school, a Chabad school, so still a Hasidic school, but something that provided a little more of an education. When I tried to do the same for my son, I was stopped. I had applied to also a Chabad school that provided, you know, a stronger secular education and tried to enroll him there, but was stopped in the family court. So I really felt very stuck. And, you know, my children had gotten older by then. And some of my sons have gone on to be Talmudic scholars, just like their father, and they have been very well prepared for that through their Hasidic schools. But my sons who are, have not gone that road have really struggled to find jobs. It's almost impossible to get a job outside of the community because they don't have high school diplomas or anything like that. Once again, felt stuck. Like, what was I, how, what was I supposed to do? How, how, what was I supposed to do? I think for parents in the Hasidic community, a lot of parents complain about the lack of secular education, especially for boys. But there's no one to complain to, so it's kind of grumbling among the mothers. But also there's the sense of, okay, this, these are what the Hasidic schools are like, and it's just too bad. You know, and I had been following the work of Yafed, the organization that Naftali Moster founded. And he was talking about education and how, you know, it's actually a legal requirement, which, which actually shocked me. This is where our kids are and this is what we need to do. And it's just too bad. I just want to point out that Yafed is the organization that's been established in order to advocate for Hasidic children to receive a greater secular education. And it's an organization that now you head professionally. Is that right? I was appointed in October of 2022. So very recently, but my involvement with Yafed began back in 2019 when I, with their support, I filed a complaint against the yeshiva and the city and state because they are all required to make sure that my son gets an education. Yafed had filed a complaint for a number of schools back in 2015. The investigation had never been completed and has still not been completed. Hopefully that will be completed soon, but at that point it had not been completed and it was a little more challenging because those complaints were filed mostly from graduates of these schools. But, you know, for the first time, there was a parent, me, who had custody of my child, whose child was in a Hasidic school, coming to the city and state and saying, this child is supposed to receive an education. Your, your laws, right? New York state laws state that he's supposed to receive an education. And I'm telling you, he's not. Well, what does that mean when he's not? Do they know basic American history? Do they know how to read? Can they add basic math what is it what do you what do you mean when you say they're not receiving a full secular education so here is what it looks like from the age of 8 so from second grade 
through seventh grade for five years, they have what is called English. And that takes place for between an hour to 90 minutes at the end of the day. Other than that, their entire day is Judaic studies. When they're younger, it's the Torah, the Chumash. When they get older, it's the Talmud. Their days start very early. My son starts 8.30 and they go to 5.45 and he's 10. That only increases as they get older. When they get older, it can be 12, 13, 14 hour days. But what they call English, which is their secular or academic education, is only an hour to 90 minutes of that day and ends by their bar mitzvah. So in, in eighth grade, they are no longer receiving that. In high school, there is nothing at all. Well, can they read a newspaper at the end of that? Can they, can they pick up a newspaper and read the paper? Well, you know that the New York Times translated that first article in Yiddish. And the reason they translated it in Yiddish is because many, many, many graduates could, would not be able to read the New York Times. So the schools receive government funding. They, based on the assumption and the commitment that they achieve certain standards of secular education and the kids, they're not able to, in the end of the day, read an article in the paper or read a book or a novel? Correct. So what the teaching actually consists of, they have Yiddish for the most part, at least in my son's school, you know, it can be different, but I can speak for my son. His teacher speaks in Yiddish to the children. So their English is delivered in Yiddish. He said one time they had a teacher who spoke English and the kids couldn't understand, so my son translated. My son has to correct the spelling, simple words, third grade level words. So ultimately they end up graduating with maybe a third or fourth, maybe a fourth grade level in math and English. They don't touch history, social studies. They once touched science, if you might have seen in the paper, where, where the teacher had no idea and told them that, you know, the sun revolves around the earth and then what they didn't include in the paper was that my son corrected the teacher. And I asked my son, was the teacher, you know, annoyed that you corrected him? He said, no, my teacher was very curious because he said he never learned it. You know, so, so they really don't get taught anything. The issue of the funding is quite a complex one. Every child in New York State is required to get an education. And this is a hundred year old law, regardless of funding or not funding. The law that talks about education does not tie it to funding. So even if a school would decide we are not taking any state funding from now on, they would still be required to give the children an education because they are a New York State school if they want to be a school. You know, otherwise they can be a, you know, religious institution. But if you want to be a school in this state, there's a bare minimum of what you need to teach, which they, they call it substantial equivalency. And, you know, we saw a little bit of that when finally, after three years, through a court that forced them to do it, the state completed the investigation and provided the school with a list of items that they were not doing, which was teaching history, science, what we would consider a very basic curriculum. Yeah, I want to make it clear that there are some Hasidic and Haredi schools that do provide a substantially equivalent education that's culturally sensitive, so it definitely is possible. The funding is another problem. And technically, all those schools are only considered schools if they provide an education, but they're not. But nobody was checking on them for decades, and there was this automatic checkbox given that if you applied to be a school, you got approved to be a school, you got this big check mark, and then you got funding for busing, for taking attendance, for keeping track of vaccinations, for school lunches, and many, many other funding sources. One of the more recent funding sources for the schools 
is uh, vouchers. So we all know of childcare vouchers that are given to low-income families to provide for them the ability to pay for childcare. But when this law was put into place and this extra funding, there was understanding that it would also be able to go to yeshivas. So what parents are doing is they're sending that money straight to yeshivas. I personally got several emails from my son's school asking me to fill out, you know, the voucher application so that they can use that money for his schooling. So this funding, as you saw from the Times who put that together, is a lot of money. And they're not even schools. So not only shouldn't they be getting the funding, but they shouldn't even be called schools, really. In the light of that report and various other reports, there's been a, some contention on the part of some people that, you know, the New York Times has it out for the Jewish community or the Hasidic community, and that these exposés and this focus on the Hasidic community and education is evidence of a coolness towards Judaism, perhaps even uh, an element of anti-Semitism. What's your response to that? I have so much to say about this, and I'm going to be writing something about this. The first time the Holocaust and anti-Semitism was used against me was when I left my marriage. And the claim was that my grandparents survived so much not for me to leave my marriage. Unfortunately, we have seen the claims of anti-Semitism really weaponized against somebody like me, who's clearly not anti-Semitic, trying to do good work and improve things. I'll never forget, I got involved in a little bit of a, a work that we did before the mayoral election, when the top contenders were promising, you know, the community that they would not make any changes in yeshivas. So we got on robocalls and we got, we reached a million people to tell people, I want you to know if you vote for this candidate, our children will not be taught, you know, the following thing. Within hours, there was a Twitter thread saying, oh, these anti-Semitic calls. It did not take long to realize that this was somebody that was running for office and, you know, was not just an innocent bystander. And I think that is the same exact thing what is happening with the Times article. The one organization that is putting them two together, right? Anti-Semitic attacks, New York Times reporting, a multi-million dollar organization that gets a lot of its funding through its advocacy work it does for yeshivas and has every interest of mind to not have any of this exposed. So I just, I just want to clarify that. And there was no transparency there at all. They have been opposed to all of our work from the beginning. Initially, our founder, the founder of Yafed, reached out to organization to say, we know this is a problem. What can we do about this? And was completely rebuffed. It's horrible. The, this is children's rights. These are children. These are young children who have no recourse and no access to being taught. Their parents often, because they didn't get an education and they're in these communities, don't even know where to go to access resources, even if they thought of doing something like that. And then there's an organization such as Howard's trying to do this advocacy work and being called anti-Semites when we're trying to improve the lives of individual children in the community. Yafed is sensitive to the issue of anti-Semitism. I mean, absolutely. And are always very, very careful how we talk about this issue. You know, and we'll continue to do work with consultants and others to make sure that our messaging is right. But again, those billboards that you see out there in New York, they're 100% disingenuous. They're being funded by an organization that stands to benefit from the continued educational neglect of Hasidic children. Are you optimistic about the near and longer term future? Do you see progress? A law has passed, right? 
in September, they passed a law and they made it very clear of what they expect from the local school authorities. So yes, absolutely. Right now is as optimistic as this cause has ever been. And I think there's a lot of desperation on the part of those that are calling it anti-Semitic because they know there are lawsuits pending. So this is not going to go without a fight. And that's why our work, the work at Yafet, is still very relevant. One school has been found to be not substantially equivalent. The state has had very strong words against the city for not making sure that their assessment was accurate. There's a lot of good work happening. Beatrice, I don't understand why a parent would be opposed to having their children know how to read. Why do you think they are so opposed to being able to read and being able to add numbers? Do you think they're opposed to it because it takes away hours of the day for Torah study in school? Or is there something insidious about knowing how to read that might be threatening to the community? I think it's a combination of a few things. So the first thing I want to get away, put to the side, is that there are organizations that continue, have benefited and continue to benefit from having money flowing to these organizations, to these schools without any oversight. So I just want to make that very clear. And those are some of the loudest opposition to this. There is the religious precept that men need to learn all the time, not girls. That's why girls get a little bit of a better education. But men and boys need to learn all the time. So that's definitely there. There's also a problem that these schools were never given the oversight that they should have been. So these schools mostly started, you know, in the 50s, right after the Holocaust, and nobody ever came in and gave them rules. And in fact, these schools used to be better. You know, Satmar, which right now provides almost nothing, used to have a full two hours of public school teachers coming in and teaching the kids. So it has only gotten worse. And they've gotten used to it. It's gotten very comfortable. You know, then there is the other, the third issue, that there is a desire in the community to deny access to outside information. It can corrupt. There's a fight against the internet. If you send your child to a school in the community, you need to have a filter that they supply on all your internet, on your phone and your laptop, and you need to give them you know, the, the registration number so they can verify. The internet has become en- enemy number one, maybe after, after Yafet. And they, they phrase it in terms of you know, all the immoral things you can find online, but it's very clearly information is power. Education is power. And if a community wants its adherents to stay close to their values, to keep everything the way it is, it's scary. Do you have any regrets looking back at all of this? I don't have regrets, but I miss some parts very, very, very much. I do. Like the high holidays now that just passed, there was something about that month of the rituals that are done it just doesn't compare. The, the way it's done in the Hasidic community doesn't compare to any other space. The intensity of the feeling towards the holidays and the involvement of the whole family, physically, spiritually, the whole emphasis on it is, is just so powerful and evokes the kind of emotion that is really hard to replicate in any other setting. And I miss that. This has been such a fascinating uh, discussion. Thank you for giving us the time, but most importantly, thank you for fighting for all the right things and for your uh, courage and your principles. So I wish you well, and thank you for appearing on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you.
I marvel at people like Beatrice Weber, as one who has never had to contend with the enormous pressures she's confronted. I'm filled with respect and admiration for her and for those brave souls who managed to break away from their stultifying existence in the face of overwhelming communal opprobrium. I would like to believe that I would have the fortitude to do the same, but I'm not sure about myself. And I assume that most people do not have the inner strength to respond as Beatrice did, even when they desperately want to. Beatrice laid out for us the critical tension at the heart of society. It is a tension that runs through all of our lives. That is, modernity rests on the assumption of personal autonomy. The rights and dignity of the individual are paramount and are at the center of Western philosophy. As the American Declaration of Independence affirms, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The fundamental premise of modern life is that the individual is free, and that this expansion of individual freedom strengthens the collective. The individual has inherent innate dignity, and while the collective has a claim on restricting individual autonomy, it must be as limited as possible and cannot violate the individual's fundamental rights. But even for those of us not living under the kind of overwhelming pressure Beatrice described, the community imposes upon us continuous and significant pressure to conform. Even youngsters know this, as they seek to navigate the norms and boundaries of social media while avoiding being outcast or canceled. I embrace all Jewish communities. We are each separately and altogether part of the covenant of the Jewish people. I accept orthodoxy, even fundamentalist orthodoxy, as a legitimate endeavor. I believe in religious pluralism, in live and let live. If there are many pathways to truth, our tradition states there are 70 faces to the Torah, then it is conceivable to me that one such pathway is ultra-orthodoxy. Moreover, there are many things that we in the non-fundamentalist camp can learn from Haredi Jews. As Beatrice movingly mentioned, she still misses the camaraderie the sense of community that her former environment bestowed. I respect the ultra-Orthodox passion for study and the seriousness with which they seek to forge Jewish life. It's good for the Jewish community that part of us solves moral and other daily dilemmas through engagement with halakha, Jewish law. It keeps that important part of Jewish tradition current and vibrant. It's good for the Jewish community that some of us are more resistant to change than others. It keeps everyone honest. I would not want all of the world's Jews to be reformed. I have learned much from Orthodox Jews. The Orthodox world comprises part of the fine balance necessary to sustain a vibrant, exciting people facing ever-changing challenges. However, I adamantly oppose the intellectual arrogance that states, my way is the only way, that you are not only wrong in your understanding, but you are blasphemous. It is noteworthy to me that for so many fundamentalists, God seems to speak most clearly to those who are most literal in their worldview and speaks not at all to the rest of us. These lords of literalism overestimate their own capacities and underestimate the timelessness and expansiveness of the sacred texts. And further, I resist the assumption of many ultra-Orthodox Jews and leaders that nothing changes in Judaism, that modern life poses a mortal threat to Judaism, and that, therefore, we must reject society and modernity. We must keep it out of our homes, our schools, and our way of life. 
This approach has never been normative Judaism. Whereas most of us think that knowledge is power, some fundamentalists fear knowledge. They fear inquiry and information that is not fed to them by their teachers. They fear change deeply. Better to shut the world out, keep television, computers, modern literature, newspapers, even English math and science far away from our vulnerable children. Unfiltered knowledge is dangerous to the fundamentalist mindset. To the extent that there are members of our community who unnecessarily idealize this form of orthodoxy, to the extent that there are those who feel in some way that they are on a lower rung of the religious ladder, you should stop fretting. Most Jews have not, are not, and will not be orthodox in the manner of Haredi communities both here and in Israel. In fact, even they, Haredi Jews, are not an accurate reflection of our ancestors. They dress differently than Moses, Akiva, and Rambam. Their garb is medieval, Polish, Christian nobility. And in rejecting modernity, contemporary Haredi Jews depart from their ancestors. Normative Judaism always embraced the modernity of the times. Maimonides was a scientist and a doctor. Rashi was a vintner. Talmudic rabbis were woodchoppers, sandal makers, carpenters, farmers, and tanners. It's not that science itself is rejected by the Haredi community. Of course, they use electricity, modern transportation, air conditioning, heating. And of course, Haredi Jews welcome the advances of biotechnology and medicine. Fertility clinics are filled with the most orthodox of Jews. However, here's the thing that they overlook or ignore. You cannot have freedom to create in science and repress the individual and her creative spirit. This freedom might lead to cultural phenomena you might not approve of. But if you want to advance in science, medicine, and technology, economics, you must allow for freedom across the board. Hence, the need for tolerance, acceptance, and pluralism. I do not have unbridled faith in modernity. It is not the end of human development. Pre-Nazi Germany was among the most developed and cultured societies in the history of the world. However, I do believe that society steadily progresses. It is a Jewish belief, connected to the yearning for redemption. As long as we never forget the limitations of the human condition, it is life-affirming to believe that tomorrow will be better than today, and today is better than yesterday. Moreover, broadly speaking, it's factually true. Never before in the history of humanity have so many people lived so long, so healthily, so prosperously so educated, and so free. Until next time, this is In These Times.